sermons on Sunday morning. I welcome you to join with me to in turning to the letter of James, chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Let's hear God's holy word. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we ask your blessing upon the reading and preaching of the word this morning. We pray that our souls would receive the word and we would rejoice in the inner person and go and do as we have been commanded, rejoicing in our God who has permitted who has called, who has enabled us to do so. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I don't, this story is not original to me, but I've heard it many years ago. Uh, 30-year-old George Schaefer was fishing from a rowboat from friends with friends at Great, at Great Egg Harbor near Summers Point, New Jersey. He caught a small black bass and uh, He whipped it around on his rod, and he thought that this would be something fun to do. As he did so, the little fish uh, came off of the hook, went down his throat, and became stuck there. And it became stuck there with the spines on the back such that his friends could not pull it out. Eventually, George Schaefer died on his way to Shore Memorial Hospital in Gloucester City. It was just one little fish one little fish that killed him. You know, in similar way, James is going to tell us today that one little sin, one little sin, it leads to the demise of the sinner. The truth is that Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden committed that sin. They committed the sin of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One sin, compounded with many other sins, But one sin in that moment cast them into everlasting condemnation apart from the grace and mercy of God who provided a Redeemer. Well, that is the significance of sin. And James wants us to think this morning about the significance of sin because the truth is we tend to over, we tend to gloss over sin altogether. We tend to downplay the significance of sin. And we tend to emphasize one area of doing well at the expense of the recognition of another area where, in fact, we are committing serious sin. And James wants us to think about that very subject. He also wants us to think about uh, the assurance of salvation. As Christians, we are to examine ourselves continually, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are to examine continually ourselves our speech, our thoughts, always examining ourselves in light of the word of God. And as Christians, we should be pursuing assurance of salvation, assurance that we are in Christ, 
assurance that we have salvation, assurance that we're not fooling ourselves, assurance that we're not simply giving a a verbal profession of things that we believe that we believe, and yet then leaving like that man in chapter 1 who looks in the mirror and, and thinks about what he looks like and then walks away and forgets altogether what he saw. James wants us to be people who are serious about our profession of faith, genuinely saved, truly and genuinely redeemed in Christ, and truly and genuinely walking in that newness of life that is promised to every believer. If you are redeemed, if you are born again, you will walk with a newly uh, refreshed life, whereby there will be a new, new pattern of new loves Things which we used to hate, we now love. Things which we used to love, we will now abhor and hate altogether. Sin that used to compel us now holds no such sway on our soul. Yes, we still struggle with sin, but now we desire not to sin. We still struggle with sin, but now we desire the things of God. And so James wants to write, And he wants to write to people who are perhaps Christians, who are perhaps ignoring certain areas of their lives because they they will say, well, look, I'm really excelling in this one area of my life. Look at how well I accommodate people as they come into the church. And James says, well, the problem is you're accommodating people according to your own group dynamics and your own love of certain criteria. In fact, when rich people come into your church, you're telling them that they can have the place of choice seating, and the, the poor people are coming into the church, and you're neglecting them altogether, telling them to sit by a stool. And James says you can't show favoritism. So there are a number of things that we've learned about what Christians are and what Christians do already in these first two chapters of James. A Christian looks into the Word of God and does not forget about it, casting it off willfully in our own thinking and saying, okay, I read it, that's good enough. But rather, the Christian looks at the Word of God and takes it to heart because the Holy Spirit is present within us. And he goads and he prompts and he presses and he pushes and he compels and he winsomely moves all who are saved of God to desire and to love the word of God, and not just in word only, but also in action, that when we hear it, we fall under the conviction of the word of God and of the Holy Spirit. When we see what God's truth is, we we seek to inculcate that into our lives. We seek to integrate it into our daily living. So we don't just look at the word of God, but we look at it and we take it in and we desire that it would be the principle by which we live. And we ask the Holy Spirit to incorporate that word into us and so soak it down into our DNA that we leave the word of God each day changed, renewed, humbled, firmed up in our faith. Also, James has made clear that we are to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness to receive that word humbly. And so as we do this, he's going to illustrate and highlight certain, certain things in the following chapters as to how we can set aside all will, wickedness and filthiness. How, do, how can we actually and substantively do that? And so James has some very real world examples for us. 
He established that first and foremost in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, when he says that, as I've alluded already to that example of a rich man who comes into the assembly of the righteous and to church or meeting of the church in some way, and a poor man who comes. Both are on equal footing. Uh, neither one is demonstrated to be either a believer or a non-believer, and yet the place of prominence is given to the rich person according to worldly standards and not to the poor person. And then he affirms that in verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. So in light of what he has said in verses 1 through 7 last week, he's saying, look, if you're showing partiality, you're, you're guilty of evil motives. Because in fact, what you're doing is you're, you're making up, you're, you're drawing conclusions about people, about souls, about persons, based upon worldly criteria, physical criteria. And you're not looking, not that you have the capacity to do so, upon the heart, as only God can do. And so being limited in our understanding, lacking the sovereignty and the omniscience of God, what are we to do? We are to, create, we are to treat every human being as created in the image of God. Equally, on the same footing before God, in need of Jesus Christ. And whether they have worldly influence or not, it really doesn't matter. We are to treat them the same before the Lord. Well, James builds on that and says, well, but if, if, you, if you are fulfilling the royal law, what is the royal law? It's, it's that second table of, 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 the, of the, it's that second portion of the tablets that Moses received. Uh, commandments numbers one through four concerning our love of God, and, and the second table, commandments number five through ten, concerning our love of mankind. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he made it clear that, that that is a summary of the law of God. It's the two tables of, or the two tablets of, of the Mosaic law. It's the two tablets of uh, the ten words uh, of the, the commandments of the Lord. And they aren't just something uh, that, are that are various tenets that are detached or, or disattached from one another. Rather, they are comprehended as a whole. You shall love the Lord your God. And you shall love your fellow man, your neighbor, as yourself. The principle is love. The principle is uh, humility before God. The principle is loving God truly in our, all of our capacity and loving our fellow human beings in the same way, simply because, motivated by, as illustrated in the fact that God has loved you and me. So James says, all right, in summary, if you are fulfilling the royal law and you are loving your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. There's almost a note of sarcasm, just, just a slight bit. Look, if, 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 if after my illustration, the summary is that you are loving people properly and without partiality, you're doing well. Good for you. That's a good thing. But if you do show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. He wants to make certain that that is not missed. 
And so we see the royal law in verses 8 and 9, and that's the first section that we come to really in the passage before us. Jesus reiterated these things in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And essentially, this comes down to this necessity. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and and to keep the law in relationship to humanity. You wonder, why why is it called the royal law? And I, I think it's simply called that here in James because... Even though it was initially quoted, James quotes Leviticus 19, verse 18. But it seems that it's it's very special in the mind of God. It, it holds a significant place in the mind of God. And he places the authority of Scripture behind it, James does, because he quotes from Leviticus 19, 18, as I've said. So you may question, well, how legitimate is this? And in my under-obligation to love my neighbor is... As myself, well, as quoted from Scripture in Leviticus 19.18, yes, and as quoted by Christ as to what the second great commandment is, even more so. You may say, well, what is James doing here? Is James bringing us back to the Old Testament law? Is he telling us that we are obliged to keep the law and thus in keeping the law justify ourselves before God? Well, no. He is saying simply that the, that, the, that the faith that is genuine will be authenticated by, justified as it were by, at least in the mind of mankind, <clears throat> as to its veracity, as to its truthfulness. We are not justified by the keeping of the law. And Galatians makes that clear, and so do many other texts within the scriptures. No man can be justified by keeping the law. And yet genuine faith is justified in its truthfulness by its delight in the, in the law of God, by its delight in obedience, walking in that newness of life in which God has poured out his grace. What is the role for the, of the law for the life in the life of the believer? Well, simply stated this morning, if we can summarize, The law begins first its role in declaring what is the will of God. The the law declares for all the world to see what is the will of God. In every society across the face of the earth that believes that and has laws on its books that murder is to be punishable by the law, they are affirming the law of God. They are affirming that law which God has written upon the hearts of every human being which can be observed in his created order. When every single society in the face of the earth recognizes that stealing is wrong and punishable by law, they are affirming the law of God. They are affirming the ten words of God to Moses and to Israel in Exodus and Deuteronomy. So the law is clear, and so the law informs us as to what We are obliged to do and to be. But the law also condemns us in its second use. It condemns every human being under this reality that we cannot keep the law perfectly. That we cannot obey perfectly to such an extent that we can achieve a righteousness of our own before God. And so the law condemns. And it shows us that the only means by which we may be saved 
is through Jesus Christ because he is the only law keeper in its entirety and with perfection. There's a third use of the law for every believer, and that is after having been redeemed, and we see it illustrated in Exodus in Exodus, uh, when Israel was redeemed from Egypt. Do you remember? Egypt, or Israel was enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt. And for 400 years they labored and, and served in that slavery. 400 years. And God was pleased to send Moses and Aaron, the mouthpiece, and to proclaim that, they must, that Pharaoh must let God's people go. What did, what did Moses do? Go to Israel and say, look, before God will ever redeem you, you have to fulfill and perfectly keep the law of God. Then God, having been justified by your works, God will redeem you and save you in all your glorious perfection from Pharaoh. Moses didn't do that. In fact, the law of God had not yet been given in its entirety, or at least codified in, uh, on, on the tablets. Very simply stated, God sent Moses. Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. God brought them into the, into, through Sinai and into, uh, before his holy mountain. And God proclaimed, I am the God unto you, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. And then, having redeemed them, according to his grace and mercy, he gave them the law. And what was that law but a merciful thing? In, in the sense that God said, now this is how you must live. This, this is the law of liberty. In other words, this is the, these are the parameters of, these are the examples of, this is your obligation. And having redeemed you, you are now able to keep and to do the things which I have called you to do. Imperfectly in this life, but while depending upon grace, depending upon the blood of Christ, you will now walk in newness of life, increasingly obeying and doing all my holy will. Well, this is called the royal law, this second obligation of the second tablet or the second series of commandments, verse, uh, sections 5 through 10. This is called the royal law. It's, it's, it's very much in the heart of God. It calls attention to the fact that it holds a significant place in the mind of God. Israel experiencing slavery, being freed and redeemed from that slavery. Grace comes to them first, and then the lawgiver gives them the parameters of how they are to live, and what will be, what will lead to blessing, their blessing, God's blessing of their lives. Having been saved by grace through faith, having been saved by God's grace and redemption, don't those who have experienced new life in Christ want to live in a way that pleases him? Yes, indeed. We, we obey because God has, not because it's a meritorious thing. We are told throughout scripture that we cannot merit our salvation, but because we've been saved, and because we've been saved, now we want to give our lives to the one who has saved us and given himself for us. And so increasingly so, God, the Holy Spirit, grants and enables us to have victory over sin in this life and over the flesh and over the devil. 
those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, long to, to grow like him, to be made into the image of our Savior. And his example comes to us with the force of the divine law. Be transformed into the image of Christ. Do not be conformed to the image of the world, but be transformed by the new life that you have in Christ Jesus. The royal law is simply to love our neighbor as ourselves. Think about it. This morning you got out of bed and you did what was in your self-best interests. What did you do, even if you don't like it? I don't particularly like to get wet, but I take showers and bathe regardless. It really doesn't matter what I do or don't like. It matters what I do and don't need. And so we, we take showers. We clean our bodies. We, we ran a comb through our hair or a brush, depending, uh, and perhaps even through our facial hair if, you're, if you have a beard. But you also sprayed a little something on so you would smell good and perhaps you fluffed your hair just a little bit. You ate some breakfast. You went downstairs. And even if you just ate a cold bowl of cereal, you did something to to help that gnawing feeling in your belly. One way or the other, you wanted to feel that comfort that would largely give itself to your own, to, to your wellness and health. You got into a car and you drove carefully so that you would get here without loss of your life. And now you're sitting comfortably in a pew. You're dressed. You're not naked. You've done all those things in in your own self-interests. There's some residual carry over to the interests of other people. But but the truth is, you've, you've done well by yourself this morning. And Jesus, when he talks about loving our neighbor, he simply qualifies loving a neighbor as this. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's really quite simple, isn't it? In the same way that you take good care of yourself, take care of your neighbor. It's, it's, rather, it's rather comprehensive, but it's rather simple. I don't know how to love my neighbor. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. I'm not going, it, 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 this is not a call to run a comb through your neighbor's hair and fix their hair that might be out of place. But it does mean to be, to be willing to do that which is in the best interest of your neighbor. To look for, consciously, ways in which you can minister to the needs of other people around you. That that is what it means. And so it means that if you become, at the very least, aware of a need in the body of Christ, then then compassion will develop in your heart, and you will have, having, having developed that compassion out of a growth in the Word of God and conviction in the Holy Spirit and through prayer, that compassion lends itself to actual and real, tangible, Uh, ministry toward the needs of other people, especially in the household of faith, but even so amongst those who are in the world. When you become aware of a genuine need, and we live in a victim society, I know, where everyone out there, everyone in the world seems to need something and to expect that everyone else will take care of it for them. That's what our government has developed through the welfare system for generations. And yet there are genuine needs in our world. There are genuine needs of men and women, boys and girls, who have true and ongoing needs that you and I, perhaps, according to God's grace, have been given the ability to meet those needs and to minister in some way. 
Maybe there's someone who needs a small job done around their home. Maybe there's someone who has a bit of a financial need. Maybe someone else is in dire concern for their little one who is sick. And so they send out a prayer chain and you receive it. And you have a busy night. You're, you're very well aware of all the various things that you want to do before your evening is finished. And you don't take time to pray. Isn't that loving your neighbor or not loving your neighbor? To be willing to stop, set aside a moment, fall on your knees and say, Lord, I'm rushed for time, but you know the circumstances. Will you have mercy? Will you heal? I think it takes about 30 seconds. Maybe not. Maybe even quicker. But that's what loving our neighbor is. And it means that in some way, when we become aware of a need, and at the same time, we seek to minister to it, but at the same time, we also look for needs. We also look for opportunities to express genuine compassion for people who are in need. At the very least, sympathizing with them when they are struggling. Weeping with those who weep. Rejoicing with those who rejoice making their concerns our own. Partiality and showing partiality to people and not loving our neighbor as ourselves really denies the Christian profession. It denies our Christian profession. We say, well, I'm a Christian and I love the Lord Jesus Christ. I love him with all my heart. I'm believing and I'm trusting And yet James is saying, but, you know, do you love your neighbor as yourself? Are you progressing in this principle? Have you so experienced the love of God that you in turn, in fact, love other human beings? In real and tangible ways, at the very least, beginning in your marital relationships, your familial relationships, and extending toward your fellow human beings. Your relationships within the church extending out into the world. Do you love? Do you love other human beings? I profess faith in Christ. I've read 15 times through the English Bible. That's wonderful. I've memorized 400 Bible verses. That's great. Do you love your neighbor? That's what James is saying. James is... James has a passion for genuine Christianity. James has a passion to reveal counterfeit Christianity. James has a passion to reveal what Satan would hold up is a counterfeit of what God calls real and genuine and true. Satan is always lying about and presenting alternatives to what is genuine and what God has created. And so he loves to suggests that there are other alternatives. Rather than loving our neighbor as ourselves, Satan would tell us, well, you can just love yourself to the best of your ability and thus fulfill the law of God. Well, that's a counterfeit principle. That's what our generation believes, though, isn't it? The best expression of spirituality and of self-help is to affirm my own godness my own, my own centrality as a, as a sovereign being amongst humanity and to love myself authentically and truly and fully to the best of my ability. Well, that's worthy to be condemned even on its face. It certainly is a counterfeit of what God says. 
It's not the royal law, but this generation may believe it, but the royal law is to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you already love yourself enough. I already love myself enough. What I need is an expression of that similar love to be given to my fellow human beings because for one reason and one motivating factor alone, because God has loved me. Why should you love anyone else? Because God has loved you according to his grace in his son. Why should I love anybody? Why should I love anyone like I love myself? Well, because you've experienced the love of God. If you're genuinely a Christian and you've experienced the love of God in Christ, you cannot but express that love in some growing way amongst your fellow believers and even amongst worldly denizens themselves. But if you show no love for other human beings and you lack love, and it's, it seems to be a mark that, that marks you in all of your relationships, then we have to ask, is that profession of faith genuine this morning? Have you truly experienced the love of God in Christ? Do you know what it is to experience the love of God? We who love ourselves and lavish love upon ourselves must fulfill the royal law of God, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, there's, there's a second point in the sermon this morning, and that is there, there are no insignificant sins. That's an important point for us to recognize. There are no insignificant sins. James pulls us in in verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles on one point has become guilty of it all. Excuse me. You, you can say this morning, and I can hear the complaint, well, I have lived an extraordinarily righteous life. Such, such, such a protest was, was given to Jesus. You remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus? And he said, teacher, I have, I have all my life lived and conformed my life to the law of God. What an extraordinary statement. What a prideful statement. I have kept the law. Tell me how I may obtain salvation, how I may enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, well, okay, you've done well. Now sell out all that you have and follow me. And the man went away very sad because it revealed in his own heart, this man who professed that he had, he had honored the Lord, that he had kept the law of God perfectly, was guilty of breaking several commandments. He was coveting. He would not let go of that money, and he loved it. Obviously, he desired that money more than he loved God. That's guilty of the sin of covetousness. He was guilty of stealing because he was not willing to give to God what God commanded him to give. And if the Son of God says, sell all that you have, what do you do? If you're a child of God, you sell all that you have. He was guilty of, thief, of, of thievery and of stealing from God. More than that, thou shalt not worship any other, great, any other God. Well, he was guilty of giving himself body and soul, all of his affections to his riches. He was guilty of breaking the law of God in at least three ways and more. You shall not steal, you shall not covet, you shall not worship any other gods or make any other graven images. You should worship the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. 
In fact, the truth is that as he walked away from the Lord Jesus Christ, he demonstrated that even though he affirmed that he had kept the law since he was a small boy, he was guilty of breaking it in every possible place. It wasn't just that. You shall not bear false witness. Didn't he break that commandment too? I've kept the law since I was a child. No, no, you did not. He's broken all of them. And James is saying that. And we, If we explored this in fullness of all the Ten Commandments, you would see that that young man broke every single one of the commandments as he walked away from Jesus. And the truth of the matter is every single sin, even the smallest one, breaks the entire table of the law. We cannot pick and choose and say, well, I've never murdered anyone. Therefore, God should justify me before his presence. James comes and says, have you ever lied? Have you ever coveted? Have you ever borne false witness? Are you honoring and worshiping only God and no other God? Are you exclusively loving him in your heart and soul and no other thing? Have you taken the name of God falsely? There's so many other things to consider here. You see, this causes us to despair that we could ever possibly justify ourselves before God by our righteous law keeping. It is impossible. One sin breaks the entire, the entire table of the law. And you see, there's something about the law that we need to understand. The, the commandments are not just some arbitrary rules that God has chosen. They are, they are a summation of, a summary for us with our limited, lisping understanding to grasp that this is what God is like. The commandments are a reflection of the very character of the God we worship and serve. And God cannot be broken up into various tenets or principles God is a summary of the law. The law is a summary of God. It's an analogous representation of the perfection of God, at least in some form. And so God is in inviting us to obey the commandments of God and commanding us to obey the commandments of God. He is inviting us into the law of liberty. We'll take a look at that in a few moments a little bit more, but right now what we recognize is that God is welcoming us to come and be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior. To come and, as analogous representatives of God being created in the image of God, to come and bear that image and bear it well. To see the image of God burnished and growing within us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, convicting, bringing to repentance, refurbishing, vivifying righteousness within ourselves. There are no insignificant sins. One sin breaks the entirety of the law. All of it. One sin breaks them all. We think, well, you know, I, I kept the law perfectly. I've not murdered. I've not borne false witness. I tell the truth all the time. But, but you know, I, I, I have coveted in my life. I have. Well, okay, you need to recognize that in having coveted, you are guilty of breaking all the other rest of the laws. In those moments of sin, we break the entirety of God's commandments. We don't just break one little piece. We break it all. 
truth is the law of God is a universal obligation. It's one which we cannot avoid. We must obey the law of God. We must walk in the freedom of the law of God. It's one indivisible whole. Amongst God's commandments, we can't simply pick one out and say, well, I'm going to get to heaven because I'm never going to ever not tell the truth. I'm always going to tell the truth. I'm not going to bear false witness. Well, even with the best of intentions, we can never keep even one portion of the law perfectly in this life. Jesus Jesus breaks up every good intention of our heart by telling us, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I tell you, if you look at your brother and you hate him, you're guilty of breaking this commandment. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look upon a woman and you have a desire in your heart, you're guilty of breaking this commandment. Jesus makes it clear that the law of God is not merely an external obligation, but it is an inner attitude of the heart. It it concerns the thoughts and intents of our mind and heart together. The very indivisibleness of the law is borne out in the very indivisibleness of the character of God, the one who spoke it and who commands it. There's nothing arbitrary about it at all. You might be asking at this point, well, where does liberty come in? And so we come to that third portion from this passage that speaks of liberty. And, and, and he says in verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. But judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What James has in view here is the very nature of redemption itself, that we have been forgiven of our sins. We walk in newness of life. We've been brought and caused to be born again to a new and living hope. And out of it has flown obedience and new intentions. Whereas before we wished that we could obey the law, but we could not. And then now we're obliged that we must keep the law and we are obliged to keep it because we have been redeemed and saved. But now, having been freed in Christ from the dominion of sin, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Now we are no longer enslaved to our own inner desires and the suggestions of Satan. Now we listen to a new voice, and the Word of God compels us, and the Holy Spirit lives within us. We can obey. You see how the law of God is now the law of liberty for the believer, the saved and redeemed person. You and I, we drive on the highways and the byways, and maybe you've gone through some of those construction zones where they really pinch the road on Interstate 90, and the road gets pinched from three lanes down into one, and after all the back and forth and trying to get in, and everyone's finally in that straight line, as you drive through that bridge, there's going to be a very narrow lane, and on both sides will be those jersey barriers or some other form of something. That will hold you in line. But it will move you forward. You see, you're moving forward. You're progressing. You might even go through at 70, 80 miles an hour. I I don't know. I've heard it can be done. But you drive through those barriers. And as you drive through, you get through. There's the freedom of moving. But within the parameters of what is permissible. Thus protecting yourself and others. 
The truth is that God gives us the law that we might progress and continue to traverse through the journey and passages of life, but to do so in a way that does no harm to ourselves or others, and more than that, simply fulfills the law of God and shows obedience as a fruit of true and saving faith. Well, this morning, in light of all these various statements, there is this last one statement, fourthly, concerning mercy. It says in verse 13, For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There's a last note. He knows that we fail often to live a life of obedience. We're guilty of breaking God's law even when we when we are aware or not aware. Even though we have been enabled to obey the Lord, nonetheless we, we still break God's law. And James wants us to be clear that if we are merciless, we will not experience the mercy of God. There's something for us to recognize here. If we have experienced the mercy of God in Christ, then that mercy will be expressed as a conduit through us. We will show mercy to others because we have experienced mercy. If we do not show mercy to other human beings, to other individuals, then in fact we have not experienced mercy. Do you remember the Pharisees who came to Jesus with a woman? who had sinned against God, who is, who is justifiably to be condemned according to the laws of God. And they brought her to Jesus and said, will you condemn her? Will you uphold the law? Will you uphold the severity, the intensity, the rigidness of the law of God? Will you keep the law? The law says that she must be punished. What did Jesus do? He kneeled down. He wrote something that we're not told of what he said, of what he wrote. And he simply said to her accusers, you who is without sin, cast the first stone. And so he's appealing to something. He's appealing to their sinlessness. So he's saying, if you have not ever sinned, then go ahead. But if you ever have sinned, how can you Condemn this woman. In other words, he's searching, and of course he knows, but he is searching and forcing them to search whether or not they have experienced the mercy of God. Because if they have experienced the mercy of God and the salvation of sinners, then they will be inclined to show mercy, having that compassion as a fruit of the mercy they have been shown by God the Father. Of course, they all hang their heads and walk away. Here is the sum of the matter in conclusion together, dear friends. The scriptures say in Matthew chapter 12, The mouth speaks out that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What do your words say about you? What is your compassion, your love for neighbor, your fulfillment of the royal law, your expressions of mercy, your showing of partiality or not? What does it say about you? 
Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every one according to their deeds." And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The law of liberty is simple. It is freedom to live within the framework of a regenerated life. Continually being transformed by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. A recipient of God's mercy proves their reception of the mercy of God and their understanding of God's mercy and their experience of God's mercy. And, and, and the mercy of God moves us to mercy. But if you're not a merciful person, if no mercy is evident in the way in which you handle your, your neighbor, if there is no compassion that builds up in your heart when you see someone genuine, genuinely in need, the question is before you this morning, are you saved? Or are you subject to the judgment of condemnation? Whereby one day you will stand before God and every deed will be poured out and opened up before him. The books will be opened and every careless word will either justify you or condemn you. And of course, there is no hope for a sinner who dies without Christ. Their words will condemn them in that last great day. But if Christ is your Savior... And though you sin, you are being day by day transformed into the image of Christ. The world and its hand and, and its stamp is being lessened, fading little by little, more and more each day. And each day the name of Christ is, is becoming brighter and brighter in your life. Compassion is building up, love of neighbor is being shown. And more and more, you are not showing the partiality as outlined here in chapter 2, but you are thinking God's thoughts after him. And you are walking in the fear of the Lord. And you're confessing your sin day by day. You will not face the judgment of condemnation. You will face the judgment in which Christ will stand before the very throne of God and say, this one belongs to me. She is justified by my blood. He is justified by my grace. They belong to me. I have died for them. They are mine. They are recipients of my mercy. And they have shown mercy. And they have obeyed the royal law. And with them I am pleased. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Mercy, mercy should flow out of our heart toward others because we understand that we have been shown mercy by God. I, I was speaking with a beloved brother this last week and I asked, Why? over a circumstance in his life that he had made a decision about. <clears throat> I said, why would you come to that conclusion? And he said, well, I've, 
I've been there before, too. I know what it feels like. And I wanted to show mercy. (laughs) That's a picture of what, what this means. The one who has experienced the mercy of God desires to show the same mercy to others. And this is what John chapter 5, 24 says. For all those who are in Christ, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So what can we do this morning? Examine ourselves to see whether or not our faith and trust in Christ is genuine. Is there an expression of mercy that, that consistently begins to show up in our lives? It, 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 are we... Are we showing love to our neighbor? Are we examining our heart, asking the Lord, help me to be a compassionate person? Or do we really only fight ever and always? Do we ask the Lord for conviction and power of the Holy Spirit and showing mercy to other people? Have I been merciless? Have I been simply hiding behind a greater personal effort to show people that I'm a good person. But in reality, in my inner heart, I hate people. I hate I hate their needs. I hate when they want something from me. I hate that they harmed me years ago. I hate that they, they live in my home and irritate me and frustrate me. I mean, all of these are conversations that anyone might have in any given day. Are you holding on to grudges? Am I holding on to grudges? Am I hateful in my convictions about other people? Are you merciless? Am I merciless in my thoughts? Am I merciless in how I think about other persons? Well, acknowledge your guilt as a sinner before God. If we've broken God's law in one part, we're guilty of breaking the whole of it. But we can go to God through Christ Jesus and we will find that we may be justified by grace through faith if we believe in him and repent of our sins. No one seeking to be justified by the law will succeed. We are only lawbreakers. But good news is Christ died for lawbreakers in order that he might enable us to become lawkeepers. Little by little, modicum by modicum, day by day, all according to grace. Confess your sins to the Lord, and he will forgive you. Immerse yourself in your Savior. Be convicted that you have been merciless. Don't hide behind personal efforts, but go to Christ and ask the Lord to have mercy. And he will pour out his mercy such that you will experience his mercy, and you will find that that newfound mercy will bear fruit in showing compassion and mercy to others. That is what an authentic faith is and does. May God be pleased to work that kind of faith in our soul. Let's pray.